Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. For those of you who are new to Radio Islam, welcome. We are a live call in talk show broadcasting from Chicago on WCEV 1450 AM. And we are streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. Remember, you can also listen to us at the tune on the TuneIn app at WCEV. Now, if you haven't already done so, keep up with us on social media. I'm starting out tongue-tied. Uh, keep up with us on social media by following and liking us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. Now, if you have a comment or a question you'd like to pose throughout the course of tonight's show, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. All right, folks. Radio Islam family, among the many things that happened in 2017, we witnessed the 100th anniversary of the Balfour, Balfour Declaration, uh, which resulted, uh, for those of you who know the history, it resulted in the creation of the State of Israel and the disenfranchisement of millions of Palestinians. Uh, we also witnessed, uh, recently, we witnessed uh, President Trump make the declaration, uh, declared intention of moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Um, so we are fortunate that tonight we have someone in studio with us that is going to be able to give us uh, some some context, some history. Um, Tarek Khalil, he is an attorney and activist. Um, I'm going to tell you a little, bit, a little bit about him. He's an alumnus of the University of Illinois, Chicago. That's UIC. Uh, shout out to UIC. We've got a lot of friends over there. My wife's there. Uh, <laughs> He was a member of the Students for Justice in Palestine. He has worked with the Illinois Coalition Against Torture, an organization which seeks to end domestic police torture and raise awareness of global torture. Tarek defended the civil rights of the Chicagoland community as a volunteer attorney for the <coughs> Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE. Another shout-out. Great folks over there. He is also a board member with the American Muslims for Palestine, AMP Chicago. With AMP, Tarek lectures on topics such as modern Palestinian history, Middle East politics, and Palestinian rights under international law. Thank you for joining us. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, alaikum assalam. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm going to, before we jump into the conversation, if I sound a little tongue-tied, it is because of this fast, uh, this, this, this cleanse that I'm on. I think this is day four, and I think it's messing with my... My, my addiction. You're looking so, good, bro. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> huh? I got no protein. Ibrahim says I have no protein. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I got some in the midsection. So, um, first off, uh, American Muslim uh, for Palestine, AMP, um, give us a little bit of uh, information, our Radio Islam family, who may not be familiar with the organization. Assalamu alaikum. Once again, thank you for having thank me. Um, the American Muslims for Palestine is essentially a national organization, grassroots-based organization that was founded in 2006. The main, the main purpose of AMP was to educate the public, the obviously ignorant public, on, the, on issues vis-a-vis Palestine mm-hmm. and, its, and its history, current events, and what we can do to um, free the Palestinian people from decades of, of occupation and dispossession and apartheid. And we go through many different programs, and we've expanded our offices 
We just recently opened up an office in D.C., so we're involved in policymaking, influencing uh, legislative measures, and so we're, you know, we're at our capital mm-hmm. um, and trying to influence policy on a more formal level. We're involved with BDS campaigns, boycott, di- divestment sanctions, um, another grassroots movement, um, uh, the purpose of which is to achieve Palestinian self-determination. Obviously, there's more, there's more to it, but that's essentially the purpose behind it, and we also um, help out uh, our students who are active on campus, who need um, who need assistance, whether it's educational material, funding, whatever it is that's that's needed for them to further their their activism. Mm-hmm. Um, as you uh, mentioned in your intro, I was a part of SJP in uh, UIC when I when when I was going to UIC a decade or so ago. Feels like forever, but when I when I was going there, S, SJP was essentially starting up. It was not widely known. It was it was slowly building itself, and now UIC has a very active SJP, and the surrounding schools in the area also have very active SJP. So the word is getting out. The we're able to slowly influence policy now. The Palestine question has become a bipartisan issue. Slowly, it's it's slowly getting to that. We've seen it in the campaign um, for Bernie Sanders. There were a lot of advocates advocating on behalf of Palestine. We saw that in the uh, the, the move to change the Democratic platform to, uh, mm-hmm. to, to take out the fact that Jerusalem is the uh, united capital of Israel. Right. So, I mean, there, there have been little things happening slowly but surely, that is affecting the way that we conceptualize the conflict and the way that we think about it. And I believe that in due time, the American public and our job, um, I mean as a public, but specifically as AMP, we want to make sure the public understand what is at stake and how they can be involved, especially here in the United States where we are heavily involved in this. We uh, are, our, our hand is directly involved in the suppression and oppression of the Palestinian people. So we have, we have a major stake in this as citizens. Would you expound a little bit on that? Um, for those who are not aware of the of the mechanisms of oppression, um, when you say that our hands are directly involved with that, would you expound just a little bit on that? Well, of course. In every single realm, um, the U.S. is aiding Israel hmm. diplomatically, financially, militarily politically uh, you know you name it i mean yeah. there there is not one facet of state building and state uh, maintenance that the us does not provide aid for for israel so the the occupation would end overnight if us aid would stop right. and that is why even though we may disagree with him on many other issues when ron paul ran and he wanted israel to be treated equally say, okay, well, we're not going to give anybody money, not just Israel, nobody money. And you saw how the hardline Zionists opposed him vehemently right. because that's not, that shouldn't be your position. You shouldn't have an even-handed stance on this issue. Mm-hmm. Always provide aid so that we can perpetuate the occupation. Right. And sadly, um, we have a Palestinian leadership in the form of the Palestinian Authority that's essentially per- perpetuating it as well by acting as subcontractors in the area known as the West Bank. And ever since the Oslo process, the occupation of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza has become more entrenched. The Palestinian people are more fragmented. They're more isolated. Um, freedom, of, freedom of movement is more restricted. 
the religious holy sites is uh, visit the ability to go and worship is also restricted. So you see this, you see this um, entrenchment in these Palestinian territories through a matrix of control. It's not just settlements. In the media, you you hear a lot about settlements, but the issue is not just settlements. Settlements are a byproduct of the of the larger picture. There are many many more facets to the occupation. You have checkpoints, you have bypass roads, you have uh, military incursions, you have house demolitions, you have I mean on and on and on. Settlements is just one aspect of it. So all of that put together, you're really suffocating Palestinian life. Yeah. Um, when you and the U.S. contributes to that. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hence the the BDS. Exactly. Yeah. And the the purpose of BDS is so that we can stop this charade, this facade of a so-called peace process and negotiations based on asymmetrical, based on asymmetrical party parties involved, and also based on principles of unfa- of you know. Of, of injustice. So what BDS seeks to do is apply pressure. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to negotiate on fundamental, mainstream, basic principles of international law and norms. The three basic principles that BDS advocates is the ending of the, of the occupation and the dismantling of the wall, both illegal under international law. There's no question about that. Right. Um, second, to give full equality to the Palestinians that live within Israel proper. And when I say Israel proper, um, for, those, for, for those that don't know, there's a distinction between the West Bank and Gaza and Israel proper. Israel proper is the area in between both of those areas, and it is considered the sovereign territory of Israel under international law, excluding Jer- Jerusalem. Whether we agree with that or not, that's a separate, separate matter. But under international law, that is, that, that is the case. So that's where international law recognizes sovereignty for Israel. And in that area, Israel proper, the Palestinians are, are, are not afforded full equal rights under the law. So we want equal rights for them. And most fundamentally, the right of the Palestinian refugees to return to their homes. And that is in, enshrined in four major bodies of international law. International human rights law, international humanitarian law, refugee law, and and the and the law of state succession. These uh, these huge bodies of, inter- of international law enshrine this right of return that Israel disallows to this day. Hmm. Uh, is this something that you think that most most people are just not aware of? Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think I mean I think the awareness has grown with respect to what's going on. Um, vis-a-vis the Palestinians, but the specific legal elements involved and why something is legal and why and why it's not, and why something is wrong or 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 illegitimate, that's not known to the to the larger public. I mean, because the U.S. as a government ignores international law, especially with respect to this conflict. So if it's if it's ignored and it's not mentioned in the media, and you don't get that side of of it, which is which is the most important side. Right. This is this this is this is this this is what matters. Trump doesn't dictate what what should go on. The Trump Declaration is irrelevant legally. I mean, it has it has power, it has force because it came from a U.S. president. But right. legally speaking, international law is what dictates. For instance, the status of Jerusalem. And the status of Jerusalem is clear under under international law. It does not belong to the sovereign territory of Israel. Period. And that, that has been repeated successively. It has been emphasized successively. And any actions that Israel has taken 
since its since its existence vis-a-vis Jerusalem has been condemned, deplored, and acknowledged as illegal and null and void. But we have those. Uh, what do you say to those countries that um, there was a recently there was a resolution that was made not not long after uh, President Trump made his declaration, uh, but there were and it was signed by a majority of the uh, members of the United Nations. But there were still some who abstained. Uh, there were. I can't remember how. Oh yeah, of course. Was. I mean, I mean the 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 few small islands, Nauru, Palau, and yeah. and and a few others that have have a population that is just as much as the population that's in this room right now that I'm in. So I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not rendering their votes to be irrelevant, but they have no sig- significant weight. Right. I still don't know exactly why they vote this way. To to be honest with you, I mean, I couldn't I couldn't really answer. I mean, I don't know what they're really gaining from it. That's probably something that I should study just just so I find to see if there's I'm any some kind of political financial agenda maybe even uh, financial could considerations. be could be but yeah. but you know what's important to take from that is the important allies of the U.S. Right. are not in line with Trump, mm-hmm. Great Britain, France, Germany, so on. So it's it's these nations that we should be watching for, and they're they're towing the international line the international consensus and international law that especially with respect to the most contested territory in the world Jerusalem and I don't even think Trump recognizes the consequence of what he did he just wanted to be different he wants to be different in every aspect he thinks that if he's different it's the right thing right. so Obama did this I'm not going to do this and therefore it's right because if Obama did it obviously it's wrong mm-hmm. I mean it's the 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 logic is misplaced and, to be honest, quite silly. Yeah. So what is, um, I'm trying to, th- you know, actually what we're going to do, because we're going to get into uh, some of the current uh, campaigns that AMP has going on uh, right now. No, no, I know there's uh, there are some tours that are going on, right? Right, right. right. Um, we just started a, um, an, uh, a tour on an, on an academic basis, um, at different masjids, at different uh, different uh, religious places or schools, events, mm-hmm. so on, mm-hmm. um, where we're educating um, the public, students, old, young. I mean, we're trying to reach a large demographic: Muslims and non-Muslims, different different races, different ethnicities, as 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 many people as possible, mm-hmm. to learn about what Jerusalem means from. Palestinian perspective, from a Muslim perspective, from an historical perspective, from a legal perspective, and give them insight on what this means for us and also the larger Palestinian conflict and Palestinian history. We feel that it's essential. AMP is based on education. So this is this is at the forefront of what we're doing. Um, just tomorrow I'll be speaking in Bolingbroke um, on that on that very topic on uh, Jerusalem Al-Quds and I spoke about it a few days ago. I'll be speaking about it more, more, more often. We're trying to reach a broader public. Give a translation for our non, uh, non-Arabic speakers. You said Al-Quds. Al-Quds. Al-Quds yeah. is Arabic for <laughs> Jerusalem. So this is... Uh, this is <laughs> See, you learned I, something now. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, and... Is that open to the public? What is? The, uh, the, the address Oh, yes, tomorrow. yes, okay. yes. Absolutely, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Okay. And, you know, uh, we feel that it's essential for the public to understand that what Trump did not only, contra- not only contradicts longstanding U.S. policy on the question, it also contravenes longstanding international law, and that's more important. Right, right. 
So um, the tour, so you're, you're hosting events where you're able to go out and educate folks in different areas about these four different areas, uh, the international, uh, you're talking about the, the law and the religious history and history as Palestinians. Um, is this something that you are moving, is this, is this going on in other places around the country as well? Or is it something that's just uh, specific to Chicago, uh, Chicagoland area right now? Um, with respect to A&P, I mean, we, we do have offices in other states. Um, I believe something of a similar nature is going on. I don't know to what extent. Right, um, right now we're, we're, taking a, we're taking a more active um, initiative on, on it, especially since the, the Trump declaration. Right. The reason why I call it the Trump declaration because I want to emphasize it in juxtaposition with the Balfour Dec- Declaration, which, I mean, the Trump Declaration came 100 years after. Sure. <laughs> and there were, so we're commemorating the 100th, 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. And I, it seems like Americans generally view it, don't, don't, don't see the bad side of it. I mean, they recognize, okay, them, this must be bad, but they don't really know why. So what we what, what we want to do is fill that void and answer the why. Right now, there's a there are some people, not just people. We have legislators or legislative bodies that have taken a stance on the BDS movement. Um, Illinois which, is one of them, <laughs> which I find really really hypocritical uh, in in light of our own history and how we've advanced, uh, quote unquote, we've advanced uh, civil rights. Uh, the same tenets of the BDS movement are the same. That was the same strategy employed with the uh, Birmingham, um, the, the bus boycott. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of, of withholding your money, not not giving in, you know, right. not advancing. Right. So, um, how are you all? How are you all addressing the the opponents of of BDS? Well, the main thing we're doing is educating the public on the First Amendment. And that while these laws are some some of these laws are in effect, they do not prohibit freedom of speech. That's something that I mean they, that they just can't do. So they so they 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 do their best to couch the the terms in withholding of funds or anything of that nature, but not to prohibit the actual engagement in BDS. That's protected under the First Amendment. Sure. That's something that that they're going to find very difficult to overcome, but they're doing their best because they know the effect that BDS is having on Israeli policy. Israel's Israel's also monitoring the, the BDS movement. They understand its effectiveness. Um, and I think it's, I think the best way to do it in the way that we've been doing it is first edu- educating them on the constitutional matter. Second, um, showing them how effective BDS can be and to, and to not stop even with notwithstanding these le- these le- legislative measures because they cannot stop your BDS to take to take the fear out so that the people are not afraid to go out and continue their activism. Right. I mean that's essentially what this is. It's a it's a fear tactic. It's a it's a way to get people to stop because you're threatening their funds and you're threatening their livelihoods. And as you can see um, throughout many different campuses that's not having the effect that they intended. So, I mean, we have a very active community, especially here in the in the Chicago area. Yeah. Loyola, DePaul, UIC, mm-hmm. uh, Northwestern. I mean, we we have we have a very active community, and the Palestine issue is at the forefront. All right. Now, what is the what is the thing as an educator? 
um, what is the thing that you find that you are, I'm not going to say surprised by, but you find there a frequency in, in people that you talk to uh, that they are not aware of? Uh, is there one uh, common thread or is there, or there are multiple things? Well, there's, the, the media pushes this notion of equating Judaism with Zionism or Jewishness with Zionism. When, in fact, there are many, many Jews who are strong solidarity activists on behalf of Palestine, who oppose Zionism. They are ardent anti-Zionists. So I don't think they're against themselves. So obviously there's a clear distinction between the two. To be Jewish and to be Zionist is is entirely different. Jewishness is who you are. Zionism is an ideology. It's a racist ideology. It's an exclusivist ideology. It's built on three major premises. The conquest of land, the dispossession of the indigenous Palestinians, and the ingathering of the Jewish exiles. And it was founded by an ardent atheist as well. And the the founding fathers were also ardent atheists and secularists, but they invoked the Bible to push their agenda. An Israeli historian once, once put it this way. He said, and, and, and this is, as funny as, as it is, it's entirely true, that Zionists believe that God gave them this land, yet they don't believe in God. So you see that internal contra- contradiction in the, in the narrative. So, I mean, th- this is what people don't understand. This is what the public doesn't, doesn't understand. If you oppose the occupation, well, you're, all, you're anti-Semitic, because technically you're opposed to... You're opposed mm-hmm. to Jews. Right. If you oppose it, really? If I, you know what? Let's take Jews and let's take Palestinians out of the equation. Let's take the ethnic, nationalistic, religious terms out of it. Let's not look at it as Muslim Jew, as a Palestinian and non-Palestinian. Let's take those out. You have a people who live in this land who are not who do, who don't have the same freedoms that this other people has. Is that wrong? Yes. And if you oppose it, are you against those people that are perpetrating this on that other people? No. So when you present it in just basic human terms, right. everybody is for it. I always go to this, to, to this example because I think this is very instructive. Uh, when Herman Cain ran for president in, in 2012, yeah. he was on Fox News and he was asked a very simple question. Um, I think it was Chris Matthews that asked him the question. What do you feel about the Palestinian right of return? And he didn't know what that was. He was very ignorant on the, on the topic. So when you're ignorant about a particular topic, especially a moral one, you want to answer in a moralistic way so that you can seem favorable to the public. Even though you you realize later that that does not fit the narrative that your party is purveying. So he he, he, he didn't know what it was. So he said at the end, when he was pushed to to answer the question, he said, yes, of course. I mean... Obviously, that's natural that, you know, they were gone. They were taken out of their homes. They should have the right to return. But then he added the following phrase and said, but under Israeli con- conditions. He doesn't know how to, he, he didn't know how to answer the question. So obviously, it's not a right if it's subject to another party's limitation right. or conditions. Mm-hmm. But you just acknowledge that it's a right. But then he came on Fox News the next day, I believe, or, the, or two days after and said, Oh no no no! Israel has the right to deny what they to deny what they want. I I learned later on that this is that this is not the right move. Israel needs to do what it needs to do to protect itself and protect its interests. So then he told the the party line. But when he, he but when he initially answered the question, yeah. he answered in basic moralistic terms. Right. So when you present the conflict 
in that basic moral framework, people will answer with their moral heart and their moral mind without getting into the different political uh, aspects of it. Because once they politicize it, then they say, okay, I'm, I have to be pro-Israel, therefore I have to answer in this way. But if you take these labels out of it and you just present it in basic humanistic terms, the, the answers that flow are almost unanimously in favor of the Palestinians because they are the oppressed. They are the right. occupied. They are those that are living under oppression. They are the oppressed, not the, not the oppressor. So you naturally lean towards favoring them. Mm-hmm. So that's what, we, that's what we're trying to do is present it in that way so that people understand it in its proper context and not in the way that the media conveys it. Okay. All right, Radio Islam family, we're talking with Tariq Khalil from uh, AMP, American Muslims for Palestine. If you'd like to give us a call, you can do so at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. But you're going to have to wait until we come back because we are going to break. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah. And I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Hey, America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Assalamu alaikum. Sound Vision is starting a new initiative to provide crisis intervention to those in need. Through the crisis text line, anyone can text 741-741 and be connected via text to a trained crisis counselor who is there to listen and show empathy. The crisis text line is open to everyone. By texting the keyword SALAM, that's S-A-L-A-M, to 741-741, users will be connected to a trained Muslim counselor whenever available. You can also volunteer to undergo training and become a counselor. For more information, visit soundvision.com.
Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Slime. This is your host, Tariq el uh, If you haven't already done so, make sure that you are liking and following us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Slime. That is at Radio Slime. And remember, you can listen. If you're just tuning in right now, uh, you've missed some great stuff already. But don't worry. You can check the podcast out tomorrow, wherever you get your podcast, at Radio Slime USA. So we have Tariq Khalil uh, in studio with us. He is a board member, uh, an activist, uh, educator, uh, attorney uh, from American Muslims for Palestine. That's AMP. It's really easy to say, AMP. Um, And now we want to move our conversation into, uh, as I mentioned in the uh, intro to the show, that last year, uh, I believe it was November 2nd, uh, in November of 2017, it marked the 100th anniversary of the Balfour, uh, Balfour Declaration. And um, uh, there's a lot that's been continues to be written about it, about its effect uh, on, on on the Palestinian people uh, as they have been forced to, to leave, uh, as they have now those who, are, who have remained behind, uh, they are living in conditions where you know they're not the beneficiaries of a democratic state. Um, what uh, what what can you tell us about this uh, about this declaration and its uh, and its implications for? Not just the future, but let's talk about right now. What what has it done for uh, for the people, for the Palestinian people uh, now? Well, um, it has perpetuated uh, prolonged occupation. It has caused their dispossession. It has caused an apartheid system to control their freedom of movement, their ability to live a basic life of decency and you know, to thrive as a community. So, I mean, it has it has affected every aspect of their life. We're talking about a one hundred some on word letter. That was right. that was that was finalized in November of 1917, mm-hmm. and what's interesting about the Balfour Declaration is that it was not authored by Arthur James Balfour, the, for the Foreign Secretary. He signed it. His imprimatur was on it. He read it. He had some opinions on it. But the original drafters were the Zionists themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Nahum Nahum Sokolow N H N A H U M S-O-K-O-L-O-W, I believe is his name, Harry, Harry Sacker, Leon, Simon, these guys and others, they were, the, they, were the, they were the mind behind the Balfour Declaration. They were the authors. They were the, they were the drafters. Mm-hmm. So these Zionists put together a draft. And what's interesting about it is the leader of the Zionist community at the time in, uh, in Great Britain, um, the, uh, Lord uh, Rothschild, he the 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 letter was sent to him and because of his status among the Zionist community but the original drafts it went through five different drafts before it came to the to the final draft mm. and the final draft has it as his majesty's government view with favor the establishment in palestine of a national home for the jewish people it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. So that was not the original draft. The original draft was Palestine should be reconstituted as the national home, the national home of the Jewish people. So there was the definite article the, the instead of the indefinite article a, and the word reconstitute, which implies as we all know, I mean, just just a quick grammar lesson. Whenever you put an re before a word, that's a prefix for something to undo something, right. to recodify, to redo. 
And to reconstitute implies what, that, what the word after R-E stands for, constitute. So Palestine is already constituted of a people, and it's recognized in that draft that we need to reconstitute, which implies necessarily the dispossession of the indigenous Palestinians. We need to make it again. So we need to change the demographic makeup. We need to change the demographic balance and make it the national home, not a national home. So we want that entire territory for Jews only. And Great Britain, for political interests and other reasons, decided, okay, you know what? We can't go that far, so we'll have to edit it. So it it, it went through various drafts, and then eventually the final draft came out, and then the final draft had it worded as such. Another aspect of the Balfour Declaration is this notion of protecting the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities. Two things to take from that. Mm-hmm. When they say civil and religious rights, notice what's being omitted from that. Political and national rights. Those are recognized for Jews. But the civil and religious rights, you want to pray, you want to live in a home, you want to go to school, okay, you have the right to do those things. But to have a national identity to have political status, to be involved in policymaking, to be involved in your self-determination? No way. That's not for you. And notice the negative term non-Jewish communities. They're identified in the negative, not, the not in the positive. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have a Jewish community who have an, who have an identity, and we have non-Jews who don't have, an, who don't have an identity, who are just another. And they probably didn't even regard them as people. Just another. And it's, it's that characterization that essentially paved the way for what, has, for what happened. After, after the end of World War I, Great Britain was given a mandate under, under, the, League of, under the League of Nations. This was the, the predecessor to the United, to the, to the United Nations. Yeah. And, and in that um, League of Nations mandate, the Balfour Declaration was incorporated into it. So the Palestinian demise was essentially written into law um, by the way of the League of Nations mandate. But it's critical to understand this. The covenant of the League of Nations under Article 22 says specifically that, that these communities, that eventually it, it, the Ottoman Empire broke up and the, and the Ottoman territories, which are referred to as Class A mandates, they were divided among the um, among the European powers of the of the day, Great Britain and France, and five mandates were created: one for Syria, one for Lebanon, uh, one for Transjordan, one for Iraq, and one for Palestine. Uh, Palestine, and Syria and Lebanon was given to the French. Um, Iraq, Transjordan, and uh, Palestine was given to the British, and so the British have administrative control over Palestine, but they were recognized as independent nations. So the, the inhabitants that lived there were independent nations. And at that time, the population of historic Palestine, when I say historic Palestine, I'm referring to the area from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. That encompasses what is known today as modern-day Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. Okay. And we're talking about 600,000 Palestinian Arabs and 60,000 Jews at that time. And that's, and that's giving the colonization from 1881 up until 1922 when the British mandate came into effect. So that's even with the colonization and with some immigration. Um, So you have this demographic makeup. Say that number again. I just want to make sure everyone heard that. 
Sure, sure. I, I believe around the time of the Balfour Declaration, the, the population in historic Palestine was about 60,000 um, Jews and 600,000 Palestinian Arabs. So yeah. obviously there's a, there's a huge difference there. We're talking about 90, 90% one way and then 10% the other way. Yeah. And that's with um, decades of colonization. Colon, of colonization up to that point. Even up until 1948, when Israel was established before, mm-hmm. before, there, was a, before there was a war, um, the, they, were, they were still a two-thirds majority, the, the Palestinian Arabs. And this was mm-hmm. after World War II, when a huge influx of Jews came from Europe and you know, took over a lot, of this, uh, a, a lot of the different cities. So even in 1948, that was the, that was the case. And I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. go right ahead. Okay. And th- this, what we call the Nakba, the mm-hmm. catastrophe, which began in 1948 and this is the climax of decades of pal- of colonization of Palestinian lands decades of zionist colonization and control over these Palestinian areas that eventually culminated into what is known as the nakba and the nakba still exists today in various forms but now it's more of an incremental process so no um, um so what is the what is the uh, original uh, population uh, of 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 Palestine. The original population. You mean uh, we're talking? Yeah, like, yeah some five five thousand years ago. Even? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because okay, yeah, well, we, we talk about it now in terms of we, we his, like history began in 1948. Palestinians. When we when we refer to Palestinians, we refer to them in in their proper label, the indigenous Pal- Palestinians, right. because they are indigenous to that land, to what to what is known as historic Palestine. Palestinians are descendants of um, the Canaanites, and the founders of Palestine were Jebusites, who was a, who was a, who were a tribe of the Canaanites. So you have this five thousand year five thousand years of recorded history that shows that Palestinians have always inhabited the land. Now the distinction that Zionists try to blot out is this notion of religious um, religious history in the land. And since Judaism as a religious civilization existed before Islam, therefore Jews as a people were there before the, pa- the Palestinians. And that is completely false. That is a myth. Right. If we're going to talk about years and, and span, span of time, about four to 500 years was the Jewish period of rule. About six to 800 years was Christian period of rule. 13 centuries of Islamic rule. And it was the most consistent period, and more critically, it was the most tolerant period. Under 4th century Christian rulers, Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem. They were kicked out of the Holy Land, and their places were desecrated, and they were made into dumps and garbage. When, when, when the Muslims came in, when Umar ibn Khattab in 638 AD came in and opened the city, he cleaned that up, and he established, and soon thereafter, of course, the Muslim shrines were established, the Laksa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, Qubit al-Sakhra. Qubit al-Sakhra means the Dome of the Rock. <laughs> For those uh, non-Arabic-speaking uh, members listening, <laughs> yes, um, yes. and Al-Aqsa is, the, is, um, is the, the third holiest site for Muslims after Mecca and Medina. And in Islam, we embrace the prophetic tradition. And the prophetic tradition entails 
Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Jesus. So by establishing these shrines, we're not establishing it on the ruins of another religion. We're Muslims established it to embrace these figures who are mighty messengers of God. And this is the this is the point that is missed, is that it's built on the ruins of the Jewish temple, therefore it's a disgrace to Judaism, and it's, it's a way to shame Judaism, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So... Um, and throughout this throughout this five thousand year period, these Canaanites embraced the faiths that that came into the land. So Judaism came, they embraced Judaism. Christianity came, they embraced Christianity. Islam came, they embraced Islam. And that is why, up until 1917, mm. you've had almost a continuous period of Islamic rule. The only exception being from 1099 to 1187, when the Crusades came and essentially massacred Muslims and Jews and kicked the Jews out again and kicked the Muslims out again when the Muslims came back under Salah ad din in 1187, reestablished uh, Muslim control and also brought the Jews back so they can, they can continue their lives. They've always thought, thrived. Jews have always thrived under, under Islamic rule in that holy land. So from that period up until 1917, you had this period of tolerance. And then when the British came in and Zionists took over, we're in the period that we're in now. And what Palestinians fear, and what I think Muslims all over the world and human beings all over the world should, should fear, is this normalization of an ideology that is rooted in racism, ethnocentrism, and that is also rooted in the exclusivist establishment of a state at the expense of the indigenous Palestinian population. Any, everybody, every human, every sane human being Every humane person should be in opposition to that. Should be. Um, <laughs> exactly. Should, should be. Should is the conditional. Yeah. So, so uh, with, these historical, with these historical references uh, and a lot of what we see in the present day being based upon biblical uh, references, um, how have some of those, how have, how have those biblical references been, uh, aside from, in, well, not aside from, but in addition to what you've already said that, is, try, is, is omitted, um, but how is uh, the Bible, if you can speak to that, how is that misused in the justification of uh, today? Fun fundamentally speaking, the Bible was used by Zionists to subjugate the Palestinians, to justify their dispossession, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's rooted in the idea that the land belongs to the Jews. It is it is um, divinely ordained by God, and therefore we're just following God's will. And if we if we take the most extreme element, which is uh, dispen dispensationalist Christian uh, Zionism, and this fundamentalist doctrine is based on the belief that the rapture will occur, the war of Armageddon will happen, and Jesus will return and convert the Jews to Christianity, and those that don't convert will be slaughtered. And this is the paradox in this relationship between Christian Zionists and, and Jewish Zionists. Mm -hmm. Christian Zionists are ideologically at odds with, with, uh, with uh, Jews because it's anti-Semitic in its doctrine. But because Zionists don't care a single thing about that, 
they just want support and they don't they don't believe in any monotheistic doctrine whether it's extreme moderate or otherwise so they don't believe in this so-called return from of jesus and this eventual conversion but if you're going to give us money pastor hagee and others if you're going to give us money and support us publicly financially okay we'll take we'll take your your support so this this uh, marriage doesn't make sense from an ideological perspective from a financial perspective it makes a lot of sense because it helps them um, further the occupation and further Palestinian dispossession and further the apartheid system. Now, I'm glad that it's being referred to um, as an apartheid system uh, because that is exactly what it is. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on, uh, I just recently read an article, and I'm not sure if the stats were, were correct or not, um, but it said that by 2020, the, the Palestinian <coughs> population um, within Israel is <coughs> is uh, forecasted to exceed the the Jewish uh, population now yeah, yeah yes that's the that's that's the major sin of Palestinians we have too many babies and this is what <laughs> this is what this is what Netanyahu fears yeah. this is what the Israeli government fears because I'll reiterate again the basis of Zionism is to capture as much land as possible with as few Palestinians as possible. If the West Bank was made up of 50,000 Palestinians, the entirety of the West Bank, not just East Jerusalem, would have already been annexed because they can live with that number. And the 80-20% figure is something that has always been um, acceptable um, to mainstream Zionists. Okay, if we have an 80% majority, we're fine with that. That's why they're fine giving citizenship to the, to the Palestinians that live in Israel. And notice under Zionist discourse, these Palestinians that are Israeli citizens, quote-unquote-unquote, are not considered Palestinians. They're considered Arab Israelis. So their nationalistic identity is stripped from them. And the court, the Supreme Court of Israel, has not been able to recognize the foundational elements of the state. You know, is this a Jewish state? Is it not? If it's... if 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 it's based on ethnicity or based on religion or based on national national identity if that's the case then Jews and Arabs Palestinians would be would be equal under the law so to perpetuate this notion of of inequality they can't reconcile the two so that is why they're not referred to in nationalistic terms the population right now in historic palestine you have demographic parity already in Israel proper right now, you have about six to six point five million to seven million Jews. Right. You have about five hundred to six hundred, maybe um, thousand settlers in the West Bank. So overall, seven point five million Jews. The other, uh, the population in Israel of uh, Palestinians is about one point eight million. And you have about the same amount in Gaza, and you have about two point five to three million in the West Bank. So you add those numbers up. You have demographic parity already from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. That's not counting the largest Palestinian community that exists to date. That's the Palestinian refugees who make up about 7 million, if not more now. So if you add them to the mix and you implement rights, if you just implement human rights that exist under international law, What's crucial is that the Palestinian right of return, the refugee question, is not dependent upon, under international law, it is not dependent upon the resolution of the territorial question. So whether the Palestinian state 
includes this section or not is irrelevant to the question of how to implement the Palestinian right of return because it's it refers specifically to Palestinian homes under 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 international law. So Palestinians have the right to return to their homes. If their home was in Haifa, that's where they have the right to return to. Whether it's under Israeli sovereignty or Palestinian sovereignty is irrelevant to the question of where they can return. So the the fear in the government in the Israeli government right now mainly is the Palestinian Arabs within Israel proper because if that population grows you know you're going to have you're going to have a real problem because now they can't thrive as a Zionist which means an exclusivist state and also as a Jewish democracy because you can't be a democracy if you don't give rights to to all of your to all of your citizens so right. that's the dilemma that they face and that is why um, for instance, I'll give you an example. Naf- Naftali Bennett, who is a minister in the Israeli government, he's advocating a different kind of solution. Um, the West Bank is divided into, into three main areas under the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords it was an agreement that was signed, were various agreements that were signed between 1993, 1998, 1999, between the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and Israel, that essentially cut up the West Bank. Okay, into three main areas. Area is A, areas B, and area C. Area C comprises about 60% of the entirety of the West Bank. And, um, and this is what's crucial, it is contiguous land. It's all connected. Areas A and B are disconnected. They're fragmented land. And these are the Palestinian communities. Because you have this split, and because 95% of the Palestinian community in the West Bank live in these areas, Naftali Bennett, for instance, wants to um, assert Israeli sovereignty over Area C in the West Bank because we can tolerate 50,000 Palestinians in Area C to become citizens of the state, but not these other Palestinians who make up 2.5 million in these uh, other Palestinian areas. So we'll give them autonomy, autonomy, not sovereignty, autonomy in areas A and B, and we'll let them vote and take care of their, you know, they can they can throw their trash away, they can go to the they can go to school, they can do that kind of stuff, and we can have free free flow of movement throughout Area C. If the Palestinian community is in area A and B were minimal, they would annex that territory as well. They're not being generous by giving up territory. They just don't want to govern more Palestinians and have the demographic makeup turn the, turn the Jewish majority on its head. Mm-hmm. So this 80-20, which is also applied in, Jer- in Jerusalem as well, many, many Jerusalem mayors have said, um, throughout the occupation have said, so long as we wake up and we don't wake up to an Arab city, we're fine. So we have to keep the 78% to 22%, 80%, 20% balance. So we have to keep that where where it is. If you ask any Zionist the, the following question, okay, if you have two states, okay, Palestinian state and, uh, and Israeli state, if at some point the Palestinian population grows and becomes half the population, would you be okay with that? No. Well, what are you going to do? Another Nakba? Another dispossession? More occupation? To end the conflict really at its core, you have to end Zionism. You have to end this idea that you can take another people's land, kick them out, and expect to perpetuate your state. That's what we should be fighting against, and that's what needs to change. Uh, let me ask this. Is there a... So for those, for those Palestinians who are citizens or who who are in Israel are so they are citizens they are considered citizen but they don't have they don't have all the rights that Jews That's, have in the state there's okay. there's approximately 100 laws or so 
that discriminate overtly against against these Palestinians. So, but they have they they do have the right to vote. Um, and people and uh, Israel uh, Israeli Zionists always point to this. They say, "Well, you have a, you have members in the Knesset. Um, you have you have an Israeli member. You have an Arab Israeli as a member of the Supreme Court in Israel. You have Arabs who vote." As though voting, as as though we limited democratic principles to merely voting. So if you have the right to vote, boom, you are an equal an equal citizen. Is that what is that what really makes makes uh, someone an equal citizen? Honestly, I live I live in this country, and 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 I have the right to vote. You know, it is it is a it is a basic right, but there are many other rights that I that I'm glad I'm glad I have. Yeah. For instance. The right to a fair trial, the right, the right to um, the right to freely worship, the right to assembly, um, you know, uh, freedom the, of speech, the right to counsel, freedom, freedom of speech, so on and so forth. I mean, yeah. the, these are there are many, many, many more significant rights. So, you know, to limit it to just that shows that they're trying to they're trying to hide something. The right. discriminatory nature of the state—that is why it's also correct to call it an apartheid state, even even within Israel, not just on the West Bank and Gaza. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the these, these are one of the three fundamental elements of BDS: full equality for the Palestinians who live within Israel proper. Okay, so how can the Radio Islam family? How can they uh, stay connected to AMP? Uh, support the work. Uh, any uh, particular contact points that uh, okay? Well, share? a couple of a, cu- a couple of uh, quick announcements. Uh, March twenty fourth, we're going to have our annual fundraising dinner. Okay. Um, yeah. So please come check that out. That will be at the at the Belvedere on one hundred third and Roberts Road in in uh, Palos Hills, I believe, and that will be March twenty fourth again. You can you can go to ampalestine.org hmm. and you can see our website, see the kind of activism that we're involved in, see the different programs that we that we have. Stay in touch. Um, there's there's uh, contact information. You can you can go on there and you can reach out, and um, you can even reach out to me. And you know we can we can get you involved in in BDS activities or, or different kinds of educational work. You can come to our events. You can become part of AMP. We're always welcome. We always welcome volunteers and others who really care about this issue deeply and want to want to see. Um, a real uh, positive change um, in in uh, Palestine, and um, go to uh, bdsmovement.net as well, and you can learn more about BDS and study study the purpose of BDS and how the call started in 2005 and where and where it's and where it's headed now, and go through the different campaigns. Um, you know, there that's that's one way to to get involved. And another way, of course, is to you know, uh, get in, get involved in your local communities and try to influence policy by talking to your local politicians and help them um, uh, create a positive change as well. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing with the Radio Islam family. I learned a lot. Um, I'm going to get a book list from you before you leave. You got it. You got it. No problem. <laughs> All right. We want to thank our engineers over at WCEV, uh, Leonard, for a great job. As always, thank you. Our engineer in studio and producer for this uh, show, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. We look forward to talking to you tomorrow night for the Friday Artist Profile with Jamila Dur. And with that, we're out of time. So uh, we thank uh, Tariq Khalil once again for coming in. And I'm going to leave you all as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.